Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, I'm joined by Zarita Brown, Head of Culture at Camden Council in London. She's also a trustee of Poet in the City, a member of the GLA Community Advisory Group for the UNESCO Remembering the Transatlantic Slave Trade and its Abolition, and a member of the Museum of Docklands London Sugar and Slavery Expert Advisory Group. In February 2022, Zarita was awarded Best Arts Champion Local Authority in the National Campaign for the Arts, Hearts for Arts 2022 Awards for her dedication and commitment to cultural and community engagement, which affects long-term change. In this episode, we hear about how her family and personal experience has shaped her leadership style and how she believes we can change our cultural and community institutions for the better. And stay tuned to the end for my takeaways from the interview. Good morning, Zarita. Thank you so much for joining us on the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. It's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. And good morning, Kerry. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I'm really, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. And I'm really looking forward to have a, having a conversation and, and, and chewing the fat with you for the next hour. Oh, for our guests, would you... Do us the honour of introducing yourself, where you're based and what you do. So, yes, I am um, Zarita Brown and I'm the Head of Culture currently at Camden Council. Um, and I've been working in local government um, for about 15 years. Prior to that, I was at another local authority and I've been at Camden for just over a year now. So, And really, my role there, it's a very new role for, for Camden Council um, in terms of the, the bringing together a culture service. And my role really is to have the strategic overview of culture across uh, the London Borough of, uh, of Camden. And so what kind of thing would that involve? And I think you head up the arts team there, don't you? Yeah, so we, each local authority will have a different sort of iteration of how uh, culture services are put together. In some authorities, it inc can include libraries, it can include arts development, it can, it, it can include parks, it can include sports. Um, but for, for Camden, and as I mentioned, it being a very new role, it involves um, the arts development team and also the event service. And what that means for me on a day-to-day, -day, um, there's this two arms of the programme. There's one arm which is around that um, development of artists and that strategic development of the, 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 the culture sector within, within the borough. So that could be anything from, you know, we've established a creative um, network for Camden artists, which is new. Um, it's something that I think the team had been thinking about. And then when I arrived and we kind of started thinking about a new culture service looks like, we, we enacted and pulled together a, culture, a creative, cultural and creative network. And that really is for much of our grassroots artists in the borough because mm -hmm. we recognise there is a gap with it being Camden and being so big and having so many big cultural institutions that actually that voice can get missed. Um, but it also means providing the network as well for those strategic conversations across some of our bigger organisations. But the big thing for, for, for Camden culture and for my role is around how do we use culture? How do we use our power and responsibility as a local authority to bring people together, to gather and the spaces that we have in our control are uh, the public realm. So how do we start to use that public realm 
and our role as collectors and cleaners bringing people into public space mm. um, through cultural intervention. The other arm of the service is event management. And again, that's really, really important because for, for Camden, uh, we support a lot of our grassroots community festivals. I've never known a, a borough like Camden that actually has so many community festivals. We run a community grants program, festival grants program. This year, I think we administered about 57 grants. But with that grant also comes support from the event management team on how to put on your festival. That could be anything from your road closure, that could be your traffic management plan, um, et cetera, et cetera. But there is also a commercial arm to the event service because we are Camden and mm-hmm. because we have some high um, footfall activation spaces, there is an opportunity for, um, for, the, for us to be able to kind of to make, to make money from those spaces. And it is a bit of a, I guess, you know, in terms of local authority, because it is local government and our money does come from central, but is everyone is aware there is less and less money coming into local government and local government has to be much more resourceful in how we can bring in money to support and serve our community. So from an event management and, and, and a, um, uh, a venues and a, a space of, and selling those spaces, that's where um, that responsibility for our service sits. So how how would you balance um, the concern of bringing in people and creating community with that income generation? Could you give us an example of how you visualised that and uh, demonstrated how sort of modelling that? Yeah, so I guess it's things like um, earlier this year, so in in April, I worked with a number of our partners um, in the borough. So JW3 um, approached me and said, look, we'd love to bring Little Amal. And so Little Amal is the, um, the large-scale uh, puppet signifying the journey of a Syrian refugee's um, journey from, from, from Turkey um, across the borders and eventually ending up in the UK. Um, I think it was in 2021 um, little amount came to the UK and kind of journeyed through London and went up to, I think, ended in Coventry for the City of Culture there. But it was an opportunity to look, to look at how we would bring her back and do something at a much more hyper-local level for our communities. Um, and so that involved working with JW3, who was the partner. And for those people who don't know, JW3 is the, is the Jewish community centre in based in Finchley in, in Camden. Um, we also worked with the Walk production as well to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Once that idea had been pitched and um, the reason why they needed to come to the local authority is because they needed our support and buy-in because obviously this is a large-scale um, outdoor art piece which is going to need significant event management around it, um, potential road closures, traffic management. And where normally, if it was a commercial thing, as a service, we could charge for that. We could say, look, this is going to cost X amount of our time and X amount of cost for the council. But for this, because it was really important for us in terms of arts and culture, in terms of what it was going to do in terms of value for the community, in terms of our local arts partners and our, our local voluntary sector, but also more importantly, being able to bring something like Little Amal into and, and the reason why we chose April is because it was, I think, for the first time in a long time where the three faiths of um, Easter, of Christianity, Islam, and also um, Judaism came together with religious 
festivals around the same period of time. We badged it as a spring gathering. So Little Amal was coming to the borough to celebrate that. And we were able to take Little Amal into our, our neighbourhoods, into our estates. And it was just really, really beautiful watching and witnessing local residents seeing this giant puppet come into their space, come into their homes, practically. Um, it was just extraordinary. They, 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 you know, it hadn't been experienced before, but we were enabled to support that and facilitate that because we waived all of our charges to make sure that our communities had the opportunity to be part of that celebration. So uh, roughly how many people would be involved in helping that come to fruition, roughly from your team? Oh, gosh. So within the, in our team is probably, I have a team of about 10 and it was probably about, you know, half the team to across the traffic management, across the event management side, and then from the arts development side as well, because the arts development really kind of needed that relationship management between some of our institutions, voluntary groups, and also across the council as well. What we really try to do as a, as a culture service is not just work in a silo and be isolated we do try and work across the organization embed our work practices across different departments so with something like little amount it meant that we were able to draw in support from our equalities team from our partnerships team as well and i had full support from our corporate management and departmental management teams as well in making this happen but in terms of practical like how we made it happen on the, you know, in the lead up and co-production and all that. It was probably about half the team that were involved in supporting in some shape. Mm. So that's an incredibly ambitious project to be delivered at such an early stage of you being in the role. Um, <laughs> how indicative is it of your kind of your vision? And um, could you could you walk us through how you've developed your vision and strategy for the role and for your team? Yeah, I mean, I'll I, probably take it right back to my interview because my, well, my interview question was, um, you've got a certain amount of budget. What's your big idea for Camden? Mm. And I remember um, when I was prepping for the interview, I was thinking, but it's Camden. What can a big idea be for Camden? Because Camden is perceived as a borough that has everything. It has, you know, the second largest amount of national portfolio funded organisations from the Arts Council. It's got the knowledge quarter. It's got, you know, some of the big, you know, British Library, British Museum who are already doing stuff. Mm. So it really made me have to think quite hard about what, what was the change I wanted to see? What was the change I could bring into Camden? And I think because of the work I've done before, Borough of Culture and working in, you know, at, at Brent, it really made me want to go in and think about this idea of neighbourhoods and community and residents and start to really kind of strip back what does a borough, what does a, a cultural offer for our residents, for our resident communities, as well as our culture sector and our artists mm. look like as well. So when thinking about that vision, when I, when I went into Camden, it was looking already at what they were doing and what we could build on. Camden mm. had been a borough, had received uh, a, an impact award from the Borough of Culture Award in 2020, mm. 2019, sorry. Um, and that helped to shift some of their thinking about placemaking and working more in a, in a hyper-local and a co-produced way. So there already was the foundations of that. And the other thing that Camden had done before I arrived as part of the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic had looked about, at how they can work with the culture sector and work with our high streets teams to bring culture and creativity into the public realm. 
Um, and that was a program called Camden Together, which was about kind of bringing people back into the high streets and using culture as part of that. I think those two were sort of the catalyst for Camden rethinking of let's bring back a culture service and let's bring back a head of culture. Mm-hmm. With those two building blocks, it really made me, gave me a foundation of how can we build from that. But also looking across what is Camden's strategic priorities. And I think Camden's done a lot of work in the last few years around wanting to really listen to their, their, their residents and look at how they take that co-produced um, approach into um, across all the practices across, across um, the council. But I think the other thing, I, you know, you're probably going to hear me say it quite a few times about Camden. Camden is a borough that is known for activism. It's known for radicals thinking and it's known for change making. It's known for kind of really wanting to push the boundaries and do something different. So I, knowing that, that really enables me and empowers me to think about what can we do differently? How can we as a borough, as a culture service in, you know, an inner London borough really be looking at how we're pushing our practice and doing things which are different? Mm. So that obviously really um, motivates you. And from judging, even from how you're describing that, I can hear the passion and excitement of the opportunity of actually uh, really harnessing that kind of spirit of the rebel spirit, if you like. Uh, What is it about your own personal experience and story that you can bring to the table there? And, you know, what kind of examples did you have that could give you the creative inspiration for what you could do with Camden? Yeah, good question. Good question. So I, I, um, I guess that rebel spirit, I think, has always been in me um, and has been tamed what comes out at different parts. And I say that because uh, I'm a child of Windrush. My mm-hmm. father is um, Jamaica. My mother is from um, Trinidad. Um, my father um, came from Jamaica um, the early seventies, as part of Tro- Trojan Records, he came from Jamaica at a time when Jamaica was in uh, there was a lot of political turmoil. But he came as a, a, a reggae artist, a reggae musician, um, as a Trojan Records musician who was sent to the UK uh, at the time when um, reggae was really exploding. And David Ansel Collins' Double Barrel, which went to number one, mm. um, was the catalyst for my dad to come to the UK when the Jamaican government said that song's gone to number one. You need to, you know, you my dad and a number of other Jamaican artists needed to come to the UK to really to support and promote reggae music. Um, and we all, you know, know the story about when they arrived. When my dad got here, it was probably great for like four or five minutes and until the reality of what the UK and, you know, again, when he arrived, we were really in that period of the, the race relations at some of its lowest um, yeah. forms. And I think because of that, um, that rebel attitude from being Jamaica, from Kingston, Jamaica, re- music as well, particularly reggae was becoming quite politicised at that time. Mm. My dad always carried, carried that um, warrior, fighter, rebel, rebellious spirit, which was ingrained in, in me and my siblings, mm. really. And I think if I kind of think about how I brought that into different parts of my, my life, I, I, I got into the arts and culture um, very early. I, uh, um, primary school, I trained as a violinist. I went into classical music, classical music at the time, and arguably now it still doesn't have much black representation. Mm-hmm. There were many times where I felt that I just don't belong, I don't want to do this, but that spirit of actually, I, I, 
I can do this and I and I, and I need to take up a space here really kind of kicked in and um you know you drove me to continue to kind of do um, to participating in it I played the violin for about 10 years and after a while after when I got to sort of my late teens early 20s I realized it wasn't the path that I wanted to go down but I'm glad when, when I look back now that actually I continued on that path because it really kind of opened up my eyes and took me you know really was my was my um entry into a world of the arts and culture and I think if I look at it prof- in, in also in professional terms as well in my in terms of my career I think that spirit of just knowing that I need to be here, take up space, and I need to do this for actually my community and the communities that I'm working for. As I've said, I've, I've always, I've, I've, a path has chosen me to go down um, mm. public, you know, um, public service, call it, whether that be through working for um, local authority or prior to that, I've worked for the Arts Council as well. Um, but in all of those spaces, I've always felt like a real responsibility around what am I doing? to change and open doors and create access routes for our communities and I think it's that rebellious spirit that you know we were brought up with from my parents and you know I've talked a lot about my dad but also my mother also being here she came here much younger and her own um, you know struggles I guess with trying to fit in and assimilate in UK life from a child of the Windrush um, mm. coming up she, she arrived here when she was, was seven but both of their kind of their resilience and rebelliousness, I think, has been installed in in me. Mm. So it strikes me that in all of your roles, we can touch on a a couple of those others so far. Um, You've worked with quite um, established institutions and for a, a rebel spirit, uh, you know, what does it take for um, to bring that rebel spirit into relation to, with an institution? How do you survive an institution and how do you change it from within? I mean, I think with an institution, it's got to be about the relationship that you're building with that institution and their, and their willingness to kind of come on this journey. I think one of my favourite moments so far at Camden um, was when I met the head, I think it's the head of participation at the British Museum earlier this year. And I said, what are your plans for Windrush? Um, and I probably, it, it was interesting because I think being in Camden, that rebellious spirit just kind of really started to take hold in my thinking around what could we do for Windrush and how do we do it different? Or what's the story we want to tell as Camden about Windrush? Um, so I'd had a conversation earlier, it's, what are you doing? And, and um, I said, well, we don't know. We're really keen to find out what Camden's doing because we'd like to align our plans with you. And I said, well, actually, there is an idea that I've had. I would really love to explore how do we bring a sound system into the British Museum? And I just thought the answer was going to be absolutely not. But actually, I was hit by, that sounds amazing. I would love to explore that. Let's see how we can do that. And it was for me, I just, you know, we kept having these conversations and I thought, this is probably, because it's got to go up the chain and somewhere it's going to be a flat no. Um, and I think, you know, the, with, an organ, with an institution like the, the British Museum and others alike, I think there is a, a, a pace and a, a speed that they work at. And also there's, you know, it's, it's, you know there's, there's, there's different policies which probably need to be, be looked at but there's a different way of working and a pace and a scale for some of these institutions. It's not always that they don't want to do it. It's just that it's tangled up in so much years of 
different sort of rules and regulation that makes it really, really hard. But what was really lovely with this individual is that we were really able to kind of work through all of that red tape to actually realise a vision. And that vision was to do a sound system takeover day at the British Museum to celebrate the Windrush um, community and to bring in audiences that wouldn't normally go to the British Museum um, to see that to see themselves. And for me, why it felt really important with the British Museum, there were a lot of conversations happening, as we know, around um, you know decolonising collections. We we know all of that rhetoric, and um, but what I really wanted to do was to be able to look at how do you change, how do you take up a space. And what way do we take up a space as Caribbean people? It's through music, it's through food, it's through laughter, it's through gathering, it's through coming together and celebration. And we were able to do that by, you know, we couldn't quite get the speaker boxes in a great court, um, <laughs> probably too much, <laughs> but we were able to put it on the, on the, on the, um, on the, on, in the courtyard. And it was just an amazing day. And what I really, really loved about that day was seeing the security guards, many of which are from the African Caribbean diaspora actually seeing themselves, seeing their culture, showing up for work and seeing their culture in the British Museum was just amazing. You know, they were all saying this was this has never happened and they would love, you know, they'd love being part of it. And then just generally people that were stumbling in, on, you know, on had come from not even London or, you know, had come from different parts of the country saying, what is this? Oh my God, I never expected to hear a sound system or see my culture being here. I mean, the mm. other side of the coin is, there were regular visitors that turned up and were like, what is going on? Why is this happening? You know, inevitably when you do put like a massive Caribbean Jamaican sound system into a space, it's going to make noise, right? (laughs) (laughs) You would hope so. (laughs) And not everyone is in favour of that noise. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a few things coming up for me as as you're talking. One which is um, how important it is to allow your own creativity to drive you. So, you know, you obviously have a rich uh, uh, upbringing in sort of music and real a love of knowing that music can move people and can shape and change things, but also is a, is a site of gathering and, I guess, sharing and love. Oh, yeah. But also that you were willing to take the risk to just share that idea and see if it sticks. And I'm interested in that your creativity, if you like, which it has to fuel you, it has to drive you. You have to think, what could I do that's different, not only for yourself, but for others, but also that you might have a toolkit of ideas that you just throw out there all the time to see what sticks, to see whether somebody else ignites something in somebody else. And it only takes one other person to catch that to run with it, that suddenly you've got a chain reaction of things happening. So I'm interested in that that willingness to take a risk with your creative ideas, because it's not just about the administration and the organisation and all of that red tape. The idea has to ignite others. So what other kinds of ideas have you, have you thrown into the mix since you've been in post, Sarita? And what kind of things could we expect to see in the future? Yeah, I mean, I've talked obviously. I've talked a lot about music and my um, and my and my passion and my um, I guess my link back to my Caribbean heritage because that that is what drives me. Um, but that is not obviously my only my only um, trick and passion. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the other thing that um, 
I was really, I felt really passionate about, um, and the team did as well. Um, and it was really interesting because it came, it was a time when I actually realised there's a, there's a lot of goodwill and support for culture and the arts in, in Camden. And that was a year ago when the Arts Council MPO announcements came out. And so that's the a Camden, national portfolio nas- organisation. Yes, national portfolio um, Arts Council programme tw- from 23 to 26, which saw a shift in some of the organisations being funded in London. And for Camden, that meant that, that um, you know, up to five of our organisations were impacted either through 100% withdrawal of funding or a reduction in funding. And what, um, but, but then the other thing to say is actually there were 10 new um, organisations to the portfolio who, was, who were diverse led, which we also celebrate. But there was also, there was this, um, you know, this, this balancing that between the concerns for the organisations who had had funding withdrawn while celebrating the ones that have had money or investment um, and the council from the senior senior politicians and senior directors were, were coming to me my team and saying so what is the situation how do we support the arts and culture we don't want these organizations to you know to to kind of to go bust to, to be crippled what can we do um and this 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 felt really quite heavy for me in the team to be like well, what can we do we don't have the money we don't have an endless pot that we can be able to support but we have to do something because we can't see the sector you know suffering so there were two things that we pitched and what was really lovely is that we worked also with our senior directors and also with our um, cabinet member portfolio holder for culture to kind of get a sense of what they would like to see and how we can shape that the two things that came out of that is that we held a number of roundtables we pulled together was like an emergency summit with some of those impacted organisations, but also beyond because what we was hearing at the time is not only the impacted organisations, but organisations who potentially had applied to be MPOs and weren't selected and probably were going to find it quite hard joining the MPO um, portfolio in the future, but still needed support from the local authority. So we pulled together a gathering of our um, organisations to touch on subjects around, you know, the state of the nation at the moment, the state of the, the state of the arts and culture, um, what we could be doing together, working more collaboratively, but also what does a vision for culture look like over the next ten years? And I think what that really began to do was to start sparking ideas of collaboration, of togetherness, and different ways of working for those organisations, because they'd not necessarily all been brought into a room to be able to do that. And we want to continue to create spaces like that for the sector, but also looking at now we're starting the thinking of how do we now start to build this into a firmed up strategy for the borough, um, which we'll we be able to you know hopefully advocate and draw on for resources. The other part of that was um, we were able to make the case to our cabinet members to pull together an emergency package, an emergency fund funding program for our um for for the culture sector and the reason for that was because when we kind of looked at the impact at a very sort of grassroots um hyper local lens for camden it it felt that those organizations who were um going to lose money the impact of that would be on our residents on our communities on our vulnerable communities because it would mean that they couldn't do that participation and engagement work that they would have done had they had the the funding. 
So we set about putting together a cultural education support fund. And not only did we get approval for one year, we got an approval for three years of funding. Um, so that's £100,000 a year that organisations in the borough can apply for to deliver um, cultural education programmes to schools and young people, community groups, to ensure that we are still providing opportunities for young people to see high quality um, cultural um, interventions and activations. But also really, really importantly, the thing that I feel quite passionate about is that we are exposing young people, audiences into um, the arts and culture from a young age so that they can get a sense of whether it is a path that they would want to continue or follow or, or work in. And by having this fund and having this opportunity um, to support the organisations in this way, it is hopefully providing that opportunity for younger audiences to experience the arts and culture. Mm, amazing. Um, I'm curious about your experience so far of working with all of those arts organisations. What do you think we need to do as arts organisations um, to support artists and uh, creative communities these days? What do you think are the, the ways that we need to change? Um, okay, that's a really good question. I, I mean, the thing that we hear, so, my, so we have a cultural calendar network and what I hear, the conversation I have with that network is how do they even know where some of the artists are? And particularly a lot of those organisations, because of where they are located, they're going to have national, maybe international audiences, audiences and artists. But because of them being in Camden, they also want to understand who the local artists are. And I think there isn't necessarily a pipeline into kind of, a, into connecting with some of the, you know, the, the grassroots, the individual artists on both ways. Um, so I think there is a thing that there for, for cultural organisations to kind of get to understand their audiences particularly in their, in, in their locality and understand who their artists are in their locality. They want to be building relationships with them. And that could be simple things like, um, I don't know, a, a drop-in. You know, some of the things that we've been doing in Camden, as I said, through the Creative, the creative Artists Network, is um, putting people together in the, into a space. But eventually we want to be able to bring them and some of our bigger strategic organisations into one space, that there is a shared conversation and that we are starting to develop those relationships. And I, and I think from a, a cultural organisation perspective, really is a thing about trying to understand who those audiences are um, from, a, from, an, from an audience um, participation lens, but also the artists as well in their locality. And for the artists in our audience... You know, what difference do you see them making in their local communities? I mean, our local community, our audiences from our local community and our artists, they are, in a way, the custodians of that local knowledge. Mm. And so for, for us in, in, in Camden and the programmes that we develop and how we do it, we always want to hear from local people because they are the ones that are going to be able to signpost us to be able to ensure that whatever we're creating is landing well, is engaging and has local community buy-in. Um, without that, I don't think we're doing, we're not going to be able to be doing the, 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 the residents, the justice and the service, the delivering the service that we feel they need. 
At the same time, that's not to say that we don't work with people, organisations, individuals who are not from the borough. Mm. But what we do is really important to connect them in with that local lens to ensure that, you know, that whatever they're creating is responding to that local lens. So there is, you know, as I say, buying and ownership. And an, an example of that is when we did our Windrush. We did a big Windrush programme this year. And um, as part of that um one of the things I, that we sat and talked about earlier as a team and also with our, our cabinet member is, wouldn't it be great to have a festival? And I, and I say festival very, very lightly because in local government terms, when you talk about festivals and green spaces, um, it, it sometimes kind of triggers commercial deals. It triggers mm. some of the bigger festivals. And I know that that's become quite an area of tension for some local communities. Um, so I didn't want to position this as a festival. We positioned it as a celebration, but it was a celebration and a gathering in a public space. Um, and a pub the public space we chose had links with the Windrush generation. Um, but as part of that journey, we had a number of community um, of conversations with our community partners, but also with residents in the locality. And the reason for doing that was getting their buy-in to help shape what the event would be. Because without that, without that buy-in, without that shaping, who is it for? Yeah, um, it's top-down culture. Yeah. And if it's not for our communities, why are we doing it? And I think that's always the lens that I always try to go in with everything we're doing. Who is it for? Why are we doing it? Who are we talking to? To make sure that it really lands and it really feels reflective of, of the neighbourhoods and the communities that we're working with. So the outcome of that that project, what kind of impact did that have in feeding back into the community? I'm thinking in particular, Zarita, that so many artists that I know and love and work with, you know, feel ostracised from the institution or don't feel that they have any power. And yet I know when you're talking with such enthusiasm, you know firsthand the difference that artists make to our lives, but also to communities. And you've seen that. So I wonder if you could give us an example of the impacts that artists have had in the communities that you serve. Oh my God, it's been, I mean, where to start and where to finish. It's been um, so many, if I go back to when I um, worked at Brent, so when I, when I worked at Brent, I worked on the Bar of Culture, I was senior producer in the Bar of Culture team. And um, we, we set up an artist network there. And it was really, it was a real joy to see some of those artists go on a journey from, you know, self-discovery really but also developing their practice and developing their confidence with working with a local authority but also working with some of um, the institutions as well mm -hmm. um, and there's one there's one particular artist who I worked with then and I'm continuing to work with in in, in Camden and it's an artist um, an organization called Lincam Art mm -hmm. and they absolutely embody embody that, that that spirit of being able to kind of listen to the community they are from the community but take that into um institutions to make a change um the lean cam art worked with me when we took um the sound system into the um british museum mm -hmm. they've also worked with me on 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 different projects within the community there's a mural project that's happening in one part of the borough across two different local authorities but the fact that they've been able to come in and really kind of connect with us, what is going on on the ground, what needs to happen, where we're doing things wrong, 
where we're not listening, but also feed that into some of the partners that they're working with has seen a real shift change as well. And I think going back to that British Museum um, takeover, I think it was a real um, eye-opener for the British Museum on how they could work with audiences in a different way. And just with a, you know, with they wouldn't have been able to do that by themselves, but that spirit of partnership with working with us as a local authority, but us with a, a local artist who knows that community, who knows communities, brings together a happy recipe mm. of being able to kind of, you know, make the change that we want to see. So it's not just about outcomes or outputs for you, but it's also about the ideas that artists bring in to make a uh, more sustainable change. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So that spirit of change runs deep in you and that um, ambition to make positive change for more people um, is tangible and, you know, love to hear you talk about that. I'm curious on a personal level, Sarita, what does it take to be the kind of leader that you choose to be? Oh, gosh. Well, that question around leader, um, I grappled with leader for leader and leadership for a long time because I um, for many years thought that being a leader was this kind of brash, someone that's really loud and in your face all the time type of leader. And and there were some turning points when I kind of started to understand what my leadership was like. And that was when I did the CLAW leadership program in um, 2018. Mm -hmm. And one of the the people that came to speak who I was, I, I have so much love and respect for was Hilary Carty. Mm. And when hearing Hilary's journey around her, um, I mean, I'd worked with Hilary back at the Arts Council and always admired, admired her. But when I heard her journey of kind of grapple leadership wasn't actually seeing, um, knowing her, the one thing that kind of I took from, from her, but also from the core leadership program was being an authentic leader and throw, showing up as your own authentic self. And actually, me and my personality and how I choose to lead is as much a, a validation of the leadership as the archetypal um, leader that we often, that, that I grew up seeing, which was this kind of loud, in-your-face leader. So for me, being a, kind of stepping into being a leader now, how I, how I want to lead is, a, is, a, is leading by listening. Mm. I feel it's really important to be able to listen to my teams um, to the artists that I'm working with, to communities. And so when I, a lot of the time when artists will come to me and say, I've, I want to do a project, the first thing I'm going to say to them is, what is your idea? Mm. And I want to listen to that idea. And then I want to then be able to say and coach and say, actually, the bit from, well, from us as a local authority of your idea that's going to help, help and shape and feed into is X, Y, Z. How can we kind of work to kind of shape that package together? Um, but I think also just being me as well and, and just being that, you know, be, I find, as I said, listening is a real skill and something that I really, I don't think I can do my job if I don't listen. Mm. No, I'm real, really listening, not just kind of pretend listening, but really active Deep listening, listening. <laughs> to yeah. what, um, to what people want and the feedback that I'm getting as well. So actually ask, to be asking for feedback as well and to be reflective as well, mm. I think. And I think the, I, I mentioned it before in terms of lead, leading, is always questioning why and what and who. Who, who is it for? 
what's the value, what's the impact we're going to make. And that isn't always financial value. That is the impact that we're going to make to an artist, to a young person, to a resident through the work that we're doing. Well, what's the biggest challenge that you faced in your creative career so far? Um, I think it's not, I think there's two answers to that and they kind of interlink. I think it's not believing in myself and not believing that I have the power to make change and I have the power to be here. But I think it's because of the environment that I was in was not enabling me or providing that space to do that. And there were many reasons for why that space wasn't right for me. Um, some of that was down to resources. Some of that was down to passion and, and vision of, of that, that space that I was in. But I think that then fed into my confidence and me and my self-belief, believing that I can be the leader and, that, and, and, and feeling that I couldn't be a leader because I didn't, exi- you know, I didn't exhibit the qualities of a leader, which was to be loud, which was to be in, you know, to act in a particular way because I am not like that and I choose not to change myself to be like that. I can't. I've, I've tried before, Kerry. I've tried mm. to, to be that leader and it just doesn't sit and feel right with me. And mm. um, I don't ever want to be that person who I'm pretending to be someone else mm. to fit into a space. So because I couldn't do that, because I couldn't change my way, because I was just being me, I didn't fit into that, that way and the values of that space. It mm. started to really kind of grind on me and take away my self-belief mm. and my co- um, confidence and courage. Um, but, but the way that I kind of got around that was having been supported by a lot of strong people around mm. me to kind of keep reminding me, you are that. I mean, you, Gary, were one of, the, one of those people that one of my lowest points of just reminding me, you are, you can, you will, you believe. Um, and I think once I kind of got through that and changed that environment into an environment which is much more suited to me, um, you know, it, it's felt so much better. I think that's such a brilliant uh, lesson that you shared with us, because I think I myself have been in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And you do. And I think I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I certainly have experienced a lot of women in particular. Their first instinct is to think, what could I do differently? What should I change about myself? How do I show up differently? How could I, you know, what do I need to do more of to evidence that I deserve a space here? And I think that's something that actually when we just stop, take a pause and say, actually, it's not me, it's you, or this is not the right space for me. Actually, I can't flourish here. I think deep down, we know that instinctively really quickly. I think, I don't know if you experienced this, Sarita, but I knew probably when that happened to me, within three weeks, something felt off. Something felt off in me and actually I knew that I wasn't quite behaving in the way that I normally do and that I was starting to modify or temper, mm-hmm. even really subtly, you know. And then after three months, I kind of knew and I had a funny feeling in my stomach and it stayed there for a long time. But, you know, I see so many times where women come to me um, when I'm coaching or mentoring, but all, also as friends where we're like, what should I do differently? How could I show up differently? Yeah. And Or even in relationships, you know, yeah. hang on a second. No, what would it take yeah. for you to be your brilliant self? Yeah. And you're absolutely right. There were so many times when I was like, 
okay, this isn't working. I'm going to try this approach. Mm. Okay, this isn't working. I'm going to paint on the smile. I'm going to try a different approach. I'm going to try, I'm going to use this, these tools to try and influence mm. and change. I'm going to do, and after a while, I was just like, no tools. I'm out of tools in the toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing's going to happen. And I think the minute I accepted that and was like, okay, well, you now need to change your environment. It was almost a bit of a relief of like, okay, you've done everything you can do. Now you now need to start thinking and forging a plan for a new, mm. a new footpath, a new journey. Mm. So the people that are coming up with you in your team and behind you, you know, what are the things that you have learned from those, from those negative experiences that you've had in your creative career? What is it that you give to them? now as a leader? I think the biggest thing for me is around opportunity, opportunity to grow, opportunity to try new things, but opportunity to also reflect in a healthy way when things are not working. I think there is a lot of um, blame culture as a, you know, as a society, there's a lot of blame culture and, you know, it's endemic in teams where people are like, you know, rather than kind of let's unpack what happened in a, in a, uh, helpful way it's it's a very sort of knee-jerk reaction to be passing the buck and I really try to stamp that out in the team and work out right this is what happened you know if we haven't done it in a particular way what could we learn from and what can we do differently next time you know things are never going to be perfect but let's look at where we were a year ago to where we are now we've moved but it's still not perfect but we're moving um, but I think in terms of opportunities as well, like I've had team, you know, through through pro, doing the program, when we set the program, we're in that space at the moment where we're looking at what do we want to do for the next year? What does it look like in the next two, three, five years? It's also kind of identifying what people are interested in, where their strengths are, where they want to learn and grow and what they can then take responsibility for. And I've tried and been testing and modelling this through this year with some of the work that we've been doing as well, in particularly Black History Season. Um, so shout out to Camden's Black History Season. We do a three-month program, um, which is amazing, but very tiring. Mm. But team members have each identified areas that they're interested in and have gone on to curate, work with artists, communities to kind of pull those um, you know, those interventions together. And I feel it's really important that I don't own everything, that mm. I just kind of set the vision And I make sure that they feel supported to be able to do the jobs that they need to do um, and develop and grow. I think the other thing, the other part to that question is I keep saying um, to to not just my team, but also um, some of our, you know, we do a lot of work with schools, some of the young people that I'm not going to be here forever. We are not going to be here forever. What does succession planning look like? Um, And we did a, a, a session in the summer where we had a number of, we had four, I think it was four Camden schools that actually came to our visioning session. We did a visioning session with the cultural institutions around what does a 10-year strategy for Camden. And at the same time, we were doing some work placements for young people. And one of the work placements felt had fallen through and a member of the team said, well, we could bring them to this round table. And I was like, that's a perfect idea. Why we is like, you know, middle-aged leaders having a roundtable about 10 years, the next 10 years of culture. Like we need like that youth voice in the room. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. We brought those young people into the room and it was made probably one of the best sessions that we had because actually we were looking at it through their lens. But there was this moment where I was sat at one of the tables and um, said, think about what you could be in the, you know, where you could be in the next year, 10 years, what you, what, um, what that might look like. And one of the colleagues at the table said, imagine you have Zarita's job. And you just kind of saw them go, I couldn't do that job. could see the look on their face. And I turned around and I went, I'm not going to be here forever. You will have my job in less than 10 years. What would you do? And so for me, it's really important about thinking about what is that next generation mm. looking like when it's when coming up. I think local, local authority arts and culture teams, there is like a sort of perception about local authority. I have a lot of creative friends, producers, where you say, would you take a job in local authority? And it's like, no. Mm. It's, too, it's, too, it's too much red tape. It's, it's too much, you know, it take, takes a special type of person to work in the local authority. And I think we need to, you know, people like me and other sort of heads of services have an opportunity to change that rhetoric around a special type of person to work in the local authority because mm-hmm. we're trying to make change. We're trying to drive change in policy. But we also need a creative lens to come in and help try and change, change that policy. And it shouldn't just be, you know, your traditional local authority type you know, or the perception of your traditional local authority type person. We are, we are quite creative local authority people, mm. but we get written off because of, you know, uh, <clears> I guess kind of maybe an outdated perception of what local authorities are like. So I'm really keen to try and change that um, through that next generation and looking at how do we do that? And is that through work placements? Is that through apprenticeships? How are we kind of making sure that when I move on, that we've got, you know, a more youthful voice in, a more creative voice in that, uh, you know, embedded in local authority, arts and culture and arts and culture policy. Sarita, you're such a dynamic leader and you've clearly got a great team that helps to to kind of action all of your brilliant ideas and you're really generous in wanting to, it's not, it's not a meritocracy or, you know, it's not... Um, you're not kind of a top-down culture is not for you. And I absolutely love that about you. I know how much energy it takes to move mountains. So what keeps you fueled? What kind of, you know, what motivates you and energises you and helps you to stay buoyant? I mean, I love dancing. I've always loved dancing. Um, you know, you've heard me talk about music, but I also did performing arts at college. And... um my degree was in music technology so I've always been in performance um I did gymnastics as a kid I used to love watching the kids and the, the fame every mm. time the fame came on the theme tune came on I would dance to it so dance a movement has always been in my body in my in my soul really so any sort of opportunity I have to go and dance whether that be at a party whether that be at a club night whether that be at a weekender or whether that just be day, taking a dance class like I'm fully signed up for that. Um, another part, I mean, outside of my arts and culture world, I um, am a dance fitness instructor. I, I taught dance fitness for Amazing. about about 10, oh gosh, even more longer. Than, actually, next year it would be 20 years since I have been a dance fitness or I did not know music. that about you. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. amazing. Um, I actually stopped in the pandemic just because um, no one could teach and then coming out of pandemic I just didn't have time because I've got Mm. two young children and I went back to full-time work um but I absolutely love to teach love 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 teaching you know aerobics any sort of like dance fitness that's that's exactly what sort of motivates me so 
whilst I'm not teaching as much, um, one one of the things actually that I want to share with you that has really motivated me. So I trained as a dance. I trained in this dance fitness style called Fit Steps mm. um, back in about 10, year, 10 years ago. So Fit Steps is based on Latin and ballroom dancing because mm. uh, I've always really enjoyed watching it. Um, but again, one of the things that I felt with Latin and ballroom dancing is I hadn't really seen myself, I hadn't seen anyone black do Latin and ballroom dancing. In fact, growing up in London, I didn't even know Latin and ballroom dance classes existed. And so I was a big fan of Strictly. Um, but the game changer for me was when Oti Mabusi came on mm. as a professional dancer. And I always would watch Strictly because of her, because I actually love her, her dance style and everything. The game changer then came when Oti Mabusi Dance Studio opened up down the road from my house. Oh, amazing. So as of this year, I have been dancing. <laughs> At Oti Mabusi Dance Studio, I've taken a t- couple of classes with Oti Mabusi earlier on in the year. She's absolutely fabulous. Um, oh, just a amazing. lovely woman, a lovely, lovely woman, but also an amazing dancer. And I've been doing Latin Ballroom dance fitness classes, well, dance fitness lessons from um, August. I've been learning to dance, um, you know, um, tango, uh, rumba, cha cha cha. Um, I just love it. I just, I just love it because for that hour, I'm on. In my head, I'm on Strictly. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Do you know? I wish all our arts leaders had such a diverse passion for arts and creativity as you do, Zarita. It's amazing. I mean, so many people will be thinking, how does she get the time to do it all? But actually, you can see how energising it is for you. And I think it's inspiring to think that actually when you feast on creativity in the way that you do, it lifts your soul and it inspires you to do more, to be bigger, to be better and to take people with you. So on that note, I have to say a huge thank you for being so open and exciting and inspiring and sharing some of your journey. And uh, we look forward to seeing more events coming our way and for you taking leadership and inspiring the leaders behind you. Thank you so much, Sarita. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. And I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. I'm truly inspired by how Zarita's Jamaican roots and culture fuel her rebel spirit, driving her commitment to grassroots activism. She's managed to keep that spirit alive, even within institutional settings, by building relationships and empowering others, both internally and externally. Her insight on institutions needing to truly understand their audience and community is spot on. It's not just about co-producing content with artists and residents. It's about having artists and community representatives working at all levels within these institutions. Zarita's approach of collaborating with artists over time across a range of projects to discover and address opportunities together is a game changer. It's allowing artists to actively shape the landscapes of towns and communities. And lastly, her soft yet deep listening coaching style leadership is paving the way for the next generation, achieving remarkable results and celebrating a more diverse community that reflects our society today. Sarita is truly making waves and I can't wait to see the ripples of change she continues to create. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. 
Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.